Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton Junior Tiger Gao. Uh, today, here with me in the studio is Professor Austin Goolsby uh, from Chicago Booth uh, Business School, and he was previously the chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors for President Obama. He uh, advised President Obama w- back when he was uh, then Senator Obama from uh, since 2004. So uh, uh, he. It has truly had such a wide range of both economic and political experience. Thanks so much for joining us. In yeah, the thanks for having me. And also co-hosting the show with me is my longtime friend, uh, Arjun Subramaniam. He is uh, a computer science major here, also an expert on, on AI. So uh, Professor Goolsby does some research on UBI, universal basic income, the internet economy, and AI. And I thought uh, Arjun would be uh, great to adding up some technical expertise to it. Thanks so much <laughs> for joining me. Happy to be here, Tiger. Awesome. So, Professor Goolsby, why don't we uh, just uh, jump right in with a very broad question, because uh, it's such a rare opportunity for us to, to interview someone like you. And uh, we thought uh, you answer all kinds of questions about the economy on CNBC anyway, so we might as well ask you s- uh, some part about your personal life. And I, I want to... Okay. <laughs> not personal life, but um, how you got to where you are today, because... Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted to start off by naming some of the distinguished titles you've received over the span of your career. Uh, include the New Yorker's list of the top most intriguing po- po- political personalities of 2010, Salon.com's uh, one of the 15 sexiest <laughs> men of 2010, the funniest celebrity in Washington. You've been called as the stand-up economist uh, by Wash, uh, Wall Street Journal. Uh, those are not the kind of the titles that you know academics usually have. So uh, w- would you mind... Telling us a little bit about how you... Well, most of those are kind of ridiculous, but uh, the, the, I don't know what the, the salon.com sexiest men. My wife was like, I love you, but I, I don't know what this is. And, uh, and, and I said, when that came out, I was like, who even knew salon.com was printed in Braille? And uh, so the, the other funniest celebrity was a contest. And... Um, I always say that the central question of economics is compared to what, and nowhere was that more true than at the DC's funniest celebrity contest, <laughs> where no one was funny. You can go back. <laughs> My thing was was moderately funny, but that's one of the lessons of uh, of life. When I was in college, I was in it. I was in this improv group, and you uh, went to Yale. I, w- I was a Yale undergrad, and and I was in an improv group. And some of the people in that group were really, really funny, like a. Uh, one of the people went on to to run Samantha Bee's show. Yeah. Another person became the head writer and executive producer for John Stewart. And I concluded then to be actually funny is really hard. And so the key is go into something where nobody's funny. Yeah. <laughs> and even if you're the slightest bit funny, they're like, that guy's hilarious. <laughs> so that is taxes, economics, that is perfect for me. That's perfect. You know, I, I do stand-up comedy on the side. Uh, nice. In, in, at school. And, uh, I mean, I got cut from all the improv groups in, in Princeton, but I do stand-up <laughs> comedy here and there. And Arjun always tells me uh, it's 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 tough that you're trying to be funny sometimes. You know? so, but, but I said, <laughs> well, you do a great job. Wow, you yeah. do a great job. <laughs> your, your, your friends, uh, they're brutally honest with you. That's what you need. So, so why don't we go back to the time when you were undergrad at Yale. So yeah, what kind okay. of prompted you to think about pursue a career in economics, to do PhD? Uh, yeah, I... I 
in a way, um, when I was in high school, I loved math and science, and I loved speech and debate, and that was kind of my main thing that I used to do. Then when I went to college, actually, I used to debate the uh, Princeton debate team, and one of the guys who I used to beat up on, it was Ted Cruz, who was here, and and, uh, one of your Princeton, one of your Princetonians. Um, And in a way, I got to economics because it seemed like a combination of math and science and current events and and speech and debate. And in a way, that wasn't wrong. You know, I like, what did I know? I was a high school student, but um, but I, I, that wasn't wrong. That's kind of a, is a nice thing about economics. It's got that academic side, technical side, but it's also, it's not so obscure. You're not studying, you know, silk proteins yeah. in, in spiders or whatever. <laughs> um, and there was a teacher at my high school who was a college counselor whose husband was an economist, Chip Case, who's the Case Schiller. He's passed away now, but he was a housing economist. And um, and I said, the, the counselor was like, well, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I, I think I would like to be an economist. And she was like, well, my husband's an economist. And he, though, though he wasn't at the high school, he kind of took me under his wing and and helped me he helped me get a job as a research assistant at the Boston Fed when I was in high school and I would um, take the subway over I took a economics class over at, at Harvard and um, so then when I got to college that's, that was kind of what I wanted to do and I and I just sort of stuck with it and I had some great mentors there as as um, as an undergrad went to grad school and and took a job are. in Chicago. I mean, that was that was pretty much it. I just went straight and did it. You, you make it sound so casual, but you must be very, very good with uh, research and and also thinking through some of those problems. Uh, I love. I yeah. mean, I was a data guy, as you know. The field of economics. There's a lot of different parts of it, and I was really, you know, data dog. Get in the numbers, and and I always liked. Um, I always like statistics and data and stuff like that. And there's a huge component of economics that's that. And so I was kind of naturally drawn to it. Uh, and then after you taught at Chicago for a bit, you started supporting uh, then sort of Senator Obama. Yeah, he was. He was uh, Senator Obama was state Senator Obama. He was my state I, exactly. senator. And he decided to run for the U.S. Senate. Uh, this is like 2003, 2004. Um he, I tell people, Michelle was way more famous than Barack Obama was. She had a huge job at the university. And the Obamas have two daughters, and we have three kids, and our oldest daughter is is right in between in age, the, the president's two daughters. And they were all in school together. So I knew of Barack Obama Kind of as like the dad from the birthday parties and stuff. <laughs> and he decided he was going to run for Senate. And when you run for the Senate, it is like president running for president in that they're asking you about all these national issues all the time. But it's totally unlike running for president. Nobody wants to help you. So his people called around and somebody said, well, you, you know, you should call 
this guy who's at the university, and they said, would you be willing to help on policy? And I was like, you're talking about Michelle Obama's husband? <laughs> oh, of course. Of course. That, that guy for the birthday party. So I started, you know, helping him. I'd, they, they had his, his opponents in the Senate race was kind of there – was, there was a long backstory, and the one opponent dropped out, and then they – so the Republicans in the state brought in a guy from out of state to run as the Senate candidate. And that guy had a bunch of, his name was Alan Keyes and he had a bunch of really wacky stuff. <laughs> and um, didn't work out for him. <laughs> it did not work out, but it was, it was like, I would prepare these memos analyzing, you know, Alan Keyes proposal to replace the income tax with a sales tax, but exempt Housing, food, clothing, transportation, senior citizens, and poor people. Well, that was the guy's plan. And so then they would say to me, like, can you figure out what the rate is going to have to be? And how to dispute his argument. Yeah, and it, what would the rate have to be if you did that? So I'm I'm like, okay, well, I'll go get the consumer expenditure survey. But are you? what am I allowed to assume? You know, what is it? If we raise the tax on a bunch of things and not the other things, in my world, they're going to buy less of of the tax stuff. Yeah. What am I allowed to assume? They're like, I don't know. And is that what I'm saying? Do you want do you want a net present value? Do you want me to just add up 40 years of numbers? You know, like what are we what are we talking about? <laughs> Their thing is like whatever's bigger. <laughs> you know? So the answer was like seventy percent or something. You know, you'd have to have a sales tax of seventy percent if you exempted all that stuff. Yeah. And uh I would write these memos and so everybody I wasn't meeting them face to face. They they all knew me as Professor Goolsby from these memos. And so there was a debate between Obama and Keyes and I go down to the debate and I'm kind of the weapon. I'm going to be there and say, no, he, you know, his plan doesn't make sense. <laughs> so that I go to meet with Obama at the green room and he, I knock on the door. He opens the door and he's like, who are you? I said, I'm Professor Goolsby. And then he, he just stares at me and he's like, what? <laughs> you, you, profet- you look nothing like a professor. <laughs> I thought I had a 65-year-old guy with a beard and a tweed jacket. He's like, you look, and he said, what is with Goolsby? <laughs> and I said, look, man, you told everybody you're the skinny guy with the funny name. You stole my bit. That's my bit. Oh, and he laughed, but he never referred to me as Professor Goolsby again. Yeah. Um, so that's when I started working for him. And and um, and then the challenge. He was really impressive even back then. Like, I didn't know he was going to become president. I just knew he was really good, really impressive. And then fast forward to end of 2006, he's thinking about running for president. He called me and said, look, I might run, and is this something you'd be willing – like, could you spend a lot of time working on? And at the time, I said, well, I don't know. My research is very important. I don't don't know if I have time to do it. (laughs) And my wife's the one who said, she's like, look, you always liked this guy. You said he was so impressive. And I said, yeah, look, he is. She's like, and he, if he runs for president and loses, which he probably will, he's a long shot, wouldn't you be kicking yourself 
that he ran in your hometown and you didn't lift a finger and you didn't do anything? And I said, yeah, I probably would kick myself. She's like, so fine. So take six months and work on this thing and write one less paper. And then the next thing I knew, you know, is five, six years later, he's wow. been the president. I've been to Washington. This is my some chunk of my life got pulled into that, but a bunch of it was just serendipity. He taught at the law school at the University of Chicago, and I was at the business school, and we yeah. kind of met that way. It, it, it sounds like that's also how you got on our show. It's like, yeah, you have half an hour <laughs> with those two random kids. Yeah, yeah I also exactly. have research going so on. You guys, <laughs> you guys, well, one or both of you is going to be president, and I'm going to remember that we were here. Exactly. You're the good luck charm. So. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but then obviously the challenges got way bigger when you uh, started uh, heading the the economic recovery advisory board and then also the council of uh, economic advisors. Yeah. And- look, it was horrible. You guys are too young to to you know be that cognizant of it, but it was awful. It was the worst recession of our like our whole lifetimes. And people are calling around and they're like, should I take all my money out of the bank? Is it you know or is it, Every financial institution going to go under, and um, so it was, it was very stressful. That was not a. It was not that. Uh, it was not that fun, you know. If if people would say how how fun is Washington, <laughs> and then I'd see my colleagues, and they'd they'd say, "Is it? Are you having fun?" And I'd say, "Well, you know, I didn't come to Washington for the fun, <laughs> and I haven't been disappointed." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, was it at, at that time, like, did it seem hopeless? Like, what was kind of the... the kind of. You know, it, it yeah. seemed really scary. I don't know hopeless. It, it, there was a lot of hope. The, the Bush administration had been in, and, and I was not a big fan of the Bush administration, and it seemed like the wheels were falling off of everything. I mean, we'd had Hurricane Katrina, and the response was, was awful, and we were in this dragged-out war that was costing trillions of dollars, and then the financial crisis and a massive recession, and it was like, wow, we we need to we need to change the leadership. So there was some significant hope that it's like, wow, this is the first African American president, and he's going to come in. And we're going to do things differently. That said, it was scary. It was it was stressful. The GDP growth was almost minus nine percent in the fourth quarter, um, and the thing about depressions is they're basically, I'd kind of characterize as the financial system collapses and then the normal self-correcting mechanism of the business cycle is broken. It's kind of you go down and you don't come out. And and that Roach Motel style um, was, was a big fear. And and so the it's, the whole thing happens in the middle of the presidential election. I mean, it was it was later in the year than this. It would it would be like October of this year, September, October. Every of the meltdown really begins, and Obama's campaigning, and it and it it was nobody wanted it to be, but it becomes. He's like, my first priority is let's we gotta avoid the Great Depression. And I had an economic historian colleague call and say to me, he needs to stop saying that because. It's done. There's going to be a depression. His thing should be, I'm going to get us out of the depression, not I'm going to avoid it because it's unavoidable. So I do think when they historians look back, 
the fact that there was no depression when the shock to household wealth was actually bigger than in 1929, bigger than what caused the actual Great Depression, that there was none was a huge achievement. Um, And the fact that everybody seems to have forgotten it is the best. If you had told me then that, whatever, 10 years from now, people are going to be arguing about you know, what we should we the, build a wall and like all of this stuff and I cut again. taxes and we, you know, oh, they want to deregulate again. Um, but be, basically think, the yeah. economy will have come back and we'll have the longest boom in U.S. history. I would have been ecstatic. I would have been like, oh, my God. So we're not all going to die. That's great. Yeah. That's so good. Can you give us a sense of like you walk into a meeting January 21st, 2010 uh, or I guess 29, uh, 2009. And um, what's kind of the, the first priority? It's like this is the most urgent thing that we need to. Right. OK. So we sure had so this meeting and it wasn't in January. It was in December, okay. beginning of December in the transition in Chicago. OK. So everybody. So Obama names all the the Geithner is going to be secretary of Treasury and, you know, Summers is going to be head of the NEC. And they, but, but everybody comes to Chicago. We have a big snowstorm hits. So. They can't get a cab. Paul Volcker, who's like 75 years old, <laughs> has to take the subway in and march to the GSA building through the snow. You know, he's, he's, he's marching in. We go in, and it's like, it's horrible. We, each person's supposed to talk about one thing. I'm the, I'm, my thing is to talk about housing. I say, look, here's Christy Romer says, talk about the economy. She's like, we're going to have the worst recession of our lifetime. We're going to need to have the biggest stimulus of all times, bigger than the New Deal. And even if we do that, the unemployment rate is still going to go way up. And Rahm Emanuel's the, going to be the chief of staff. He's he's like looking at her with the stink eye the whole time. I don't. I, is, is he mad that that it's going to have to be so big? Is he mad at us? Wait, wait, nobody knows. We go to housing. I'm like, there's $800 billion of negative equity. Prices might go down even more. If they do, we have no idea. Millions of people might just walk away from their homes. And and if that happens, the financial system's toast. Geithner says, you know, half the big banks are probably insolvent. We got $750 billion for TARP. We might need another $750 billion. So it's just like each thing is worse than the last thing. <laughs> the president says, as a joke, I mean, the tension is getting more and more tense. <laughs> President's like, uh, is it too late to call for a recount? You know, <laughs> he's, 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 he's won. But, uh, so the meeting ends, and I go up to President-elect Obama, who I've known for like a bunch of years, and I say, Mr. President, that's the worst briefing that the incoming president has received since Franklin Roosevelt in 1932, (laughs) maybe since Abraham Lincoln in 1861. And he says, he's not even joking. He says, Goolsby, this is not my worst briefing this week. (laughs) And and at that moment, you're like, you do not want the job this guy has Mm because everything's going wrong. And, it wasn't just, by any means, it wasn't just Obama who saved the day. The Fed 
made a bunch of tremendously important moves before and after Obama came in. I had some problems with the response of the Bush administration, but in the end, they got to a to a TARP proposal that that could be workable. Um, but it was just extremely intense on the ground. It was just really everything seemed to be going wrong, and we're having meetings of the form. What will we do in the event? that the top five banks in America collapse. And it's like, we have to have a meeting on that? What will we do if the U.S. government has to take over, you know, the the auto companies and major industries? How will that work? You know, and so let us let us hope that we never have to have conversations like that again. Absolutely. Uh, I know we're kind of short on time, so I want to quickly yeah. pivot to this part because uh, that was the challenge back then, you yes. know, around 10 years ago. And nowadays, a lot of people are having a lot of buzz on AI automation, job displacement. Uh, you know, Andrew Yang ran a whole campaign on universal basic income. And you wrote this uh, very interesting paper titled Public Policy in an AI Economy. Uh, and uh, are you pessimistic or optimistic about how this thing will, will pan out? It, it doesn't seem like you're... I'm pretty optimistic. Optimistic, I think. I think kind of the philosophy behind Yang's campaign was was sort of pessimistic. But most of the economists believe that if you look at the last hundred years, there's already been a massive amount of technological displacement of jobs. And the fact that we've replaced millions and millions and millions of jobs with machines or robots or whatever you want to think of the technology. And the unemployment rate has not trended toward 100% by any means, largely suggests that there's short-run displacement, but those improvements in productivity ultimately make us richer. And so there, the, the issues of the short-run, like how fast that happens, if they invented some kind of super autonomous car that overnight replaced all the millions of drivers in America, that'd be a big disruption and it's not clear how we deal with it. If that was spread out slowly over 10 years, in a way it would almost not be noticeable in the job market. Like the thing to remember is each month, we create about five and a half million jobs and we lose about 5.3 million jobs for a net of 200,000. And so in a world where you're losing and gaining five and a half million jobs a month, things that are relatively small monthly trends, if they're spread out over long enough, you you don't see them. There is a concern though, I think that, and I think you acknowledge this in your paper too, that the AI movement today is fundamentally different from industrialization movements of the past and both sort of the speed of development as well as another concern is that um, will it lead to the proliferation of high-skilled jobs and kind of leave the workforce that has been unemployed out of the new set of jobs? Yeah, um, look, there are a lot of concerns about that. Um, the only thing I will say is that part, the the replacing of low-skilled jobs with technology, that's not new at all. That's that's quite literally what has happened year after year um, for 100-plus years. A thing that is a little different now 
potentially about AI is the replacing of higher skill or medium skilled jobs, you know, whatever, the radiologist, the AI is going to detect cancers in the films better than the, than the human can. But in a way, the high skill getting replaced with technology, we, history suggests we ought to be more optimistic about than replacing of low skill. You know what I mean? Like if you go back to 1979 and compare Detroit and Silicon Valley, they both were doing things that they were both making things that nobody buys today. So in Silicon Valley, they were making low-end computers and hardware, which is now um, at best medium-skilled job done in much lower-wage countries. In Detroit, they were making big automobiles that nobody wants to. Nobody wants a 1979 Chevy Impala. If you go to Detroit today and you say what went wrong, they'd be like, "Well, people stopped buying our stuff." But they stopped buying it in Silicon Valley too. It's just that they had such a skill base that they just kind of kept moving to the next thing, to the next thing. And ultimately, I do think the dynamics got to play out that same way and has played out that same way so many times that this issue of the speed of adjustment rather than the, are we all going to wake up in the future and there will only be four jobs left for the people who own all the robots, I kind of think that's a dystopian a little bit of a fantasy. Okay, I, I know we have to really get you out of here soon to, yeah. to let you catch the fast flight. So why don't we just go th- through a couple quick fire questions? Lightning and, round. Li- okay, lightning here round. we go. That was the polite way to say I got to be quicker, more no, 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 succinct no, no, no. to my answers. I can do that. We we love doing long form interviews. It's just uh, we 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 know you have to get yeah. back to Chicago. So. Uh, you endorse Mayor Pete Buttigieg. I do. Uh, and, and I know uh, Vice President Biden always says, but he's not Obama. <laughs> you know, so so you, you've kind of interacted he's not, with He's not well, Obama, but look, my, my view, I like a lot of the Democratic candidates. I love working with Vice President Biden. I worked with and, and was an admirer of Elizabeth Warren when she was a scholar before she ever got into politics. I worked with Amy Klobuchar. The thing is, I think Pete Buttigieg has the most sensible plan. I think he's the smartest on his feet. He's he's at he he's young and he's not from Washington DC. Um and I think that combination is is appealing at a time like this. Um but I support whoever's the Democratic nominee for sure. Yeah, uh, I I also know that you, your main research is in tax policy a lot of times. So, uh, how do you feel about the wealth tax? Uh, if if you could do, I I do a lot on tax policy. I think the starting point that taxes on high income people and rich people should be higher than they are right now, is to me is pretty obvious. Um, at least by historic comparisons, it's extraordinarily low, and the arguments made by proponents that tax cuts are going to generate magic beanstalk bean growth, pay for themselves and all this stuff has, has been disproven yep. a million mm-hmm. times. Yeah. Um, my only issues with wealth taxation are the, in a lot of places where they put in wealth taxes, 
they phased back those wealth taxes because it can be hard to, in, to enforce. Yeah. And valuation of private businesses and stuff like that are important. Um, it makes me think if you can crack down on those, why not start from the estate tax, which we already have. But if putting in a wealth tax would allow us to move to a more rational tax system, that, that, I, that I'd be fine with that. If you have a wealth tax where the tax rate exceeds the risk-free rate of return, so it's the equivalent of a tax rate of 100, 200, or 300 percent on capital income, you kind of know you're going to have enforcement problems in a regime like that. And so the people advocating wealth taxes maybe haven't thought through the details as much. Absolutely. Uh, what are your thoughts on universal health care as proposed by Bernie versus public um, option? I think you, option. you're a big yeah. fan of public option. I'm, look, the original Obamacare included a public option. And I thought that that's a, that's a valid approach if you believe that moving to a more single-payer style system would have lower cost, would, would be a more rational or efficient system which uh, there's a lot of evidence on f- worldwide. The, the, my, my only question is, can you conceive of passing a law which says we're going to w- just wave a magic wand and declare private insurance illegal and move to what, what Bernie has called Medicare for all – which, side note, is not Medicare. That's far, It ends Medicare as we know it and replaces it with something that's far more expansive and far more expensive. Could you conceive of doing that in a way that would not have hiccups? And I guess just my experience watching the healthdare.gov problems, and it's inconceivable to me that people are going to stand for having what they have taken away and replaced with something that you promise is going to be a lot better. The only way to move to something better is to give them a choice like a Medicare for anyone who wants it option (laughs) that they could say, okay, some people are picking it. I see that it's working out. I don't have a problem. I'm going to pick it too. And the people kind of move to that. Uh, And so that's why I think Medicare for all I got I got some fears that a a lot hinges on if you make every single medical cost free, how much more do you think people will use the medical system? Mm-hmm. In Bernie's estimates, the answer is close to zero. Everybody will just do what they do now. I think the evidence suggests they probably will use a lot more healthcare, which has an upside, but also has a major increase in cost. And the fundamental question of can the U.S. get its cost level down to the cost level of France or or countries that have single payer? That's the critical thing that people got to work out. And we should work toward that. But I mean, just to be clear, doctors are paid way less. Hospitals are paid way less. They pay way less on prescription drugs. There's a whole bunch of things that are different. They have different legal tort system. 
And so can we, how fast can we shift to something else is a key. Absolutely. I, 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 we, uh, you know, our, the, the name of our show is Policy Punchline. So at, at the very end of the show, I also just want to ask you, what do you think is the punchline here? You know, for your career, your, your experience with the Obama administration, uh, the recession, healthcare, people, anything. What would be one punchline that you, you would wish our punchline? Um, I, for me, I, like, I don't know that I have general lessons for anybody else. If you're a kid who likes data and numbers and current events, economics is a great field for that. And the, the style of thinking in economics is, can be really captivating. It's not my, my aunt, who was an accountant, every time she'd see me, She'd be like, did I ever tell you how much I hated economics? Yes, uh, Aunt Dinah, you've told me every day. I mean, I hated it. Made no sense. Uh, so there are some people who don't like it. But, uh, you know, I guess my one punchline would be give it a chance. Because uh, if everybody thought the way economists do, you know, we, we'd be weird. But there would be a lot of things better in the world than, than they are right now. That's a great note to end on. And by the way, I, I was just in Chicago a couple of weeks ago doing some stand-up. And nice. I, I have some connections if you would like. You know, they have, There's a very good scene there. If, you <laughs> they have a great scene. Uh, some, some I, I enjoy being a consumer. As I told you, my, my key city, approach you know, to <laughs> comedy is go like tell jokes in class and then the students are like, wow, thank you for having a sense of humor. <laughs> if you go to some stand-up thing and tell junk, they would be like, get off the stage, old man, you know. <laughs> no, Arjun, I very much enjoyed the, the humor, and, and, and thanks so much for being here. so much here. fun. Yeah, thanks. Really it's great it. meeting you guys. Of course, and thanks for joining me again, Arjun. Of course. It's great. Happy to be here. Uh, awesome. And, and that concludes uh, this episode of Policy Punchline. That was with Professor Austin Gooseby. He uh, teaches at uh, Chicago Booth uh, and was the uh, chairman of Council of Economic Advisors for President Obama. Uh, and thanks so much for listening. Uh, please follow us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, rate and review, review us on policypunchline.com. Thanks so much for listening today. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.